NPR. So there's this company called Transdime. It's in the business of selling spare parts for helicopters and planes. And one of the parts they sell is this half-inch piece of metal called a drive pin. Several years ago, the military needed some of these drive pins, and it contracted with Transdime to buy some. But then in 2019, Pentagon officials reviewed the deal and found Transdime would charge $4,361 for this one little drive pin that the Pentagon says should have cost only $46. We reached out to Transdime for comment, and they dispute the Pentagon's math. They say the price they quoted at the time was fair for this relatively specialized part. Still, for a half-inch piece of metal, some might say that's kind of steep. It doesn't seem right, does it? So I guess the real question is, how do you get from $46 to 4300 right? That, by the way, was Phil McManus. He wasn't involved in the Transdime deal, but he does know a thing or two about military spending because he used to work for the Defense Department negotiating deals with defense contractors. Phil says this drive pin story is a particularly extreme example of the government overpaying for military equipment, but it's far from the only one. And this is a problem. If you overspend for what you do buy, you can buy less of what you need. In a worst-case scenario, that literally could mean some poor soldier, sailor, or airman doesn't come back. This is The Indicator from Planet Money. I'm Adrian Ma. And I'm Darian Woods. With the U.S. sending weapons to Ukraine and Israel and with more potential military spending in the pipeline, we're taking some time this week to dive into the high-stakes economics of the U.S. defense industry. On today's show, why the U.S. government pays so much for military stuff. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Babson College. Discover Babson College's Master of Science and Management in Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, an intensive nine-month journey that equips recent college graduates with practical skills for today's dynamic business landscape. Tackle real-world challenges and emerge with a problem-solving mindset. Whether you choose to start your own business or innovate within a corporation, a master's from Babson will help launch your career forward. Apply today at babson.edu slash msleader. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Department of Defense's proposed budget for 2024 is $842 billion. That is about 3.5% of the U.S.'s GDP. Phil McManus, the former military contract negotiator, told us that about half of the military's purchases is spent on things that might not be directly tied to the battlefield. For example, things like office supplies, which the government can buy from any number of commercial vendors. But the other half of the budget gets spent on the big stuff. Missiles, planes, ships. When the government goes shopping for these things, it has a good deal of power because, you know, who else is going to buy most of this stuff? Yeah, in econ terms, the government has monopsony power because it is basically the defense industry's only customer. And that gives them leverage when it comes to buying these bigger ticket items. 
the government can say to the contractors, look, before we agree to a price for this plane or this ship or whatever, we want you to open up your books. Show us what it would cost you to make this thing. It's very intrusive. I mean, we will, we will argue over really small amounts of money. John Hamry heads up a think tank called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And in a previous job, he was comptroller for the Defense Department, sort of like the Pentagon's chief financial officer. And John says that only after the cost of making an item has been established, only then the government will say to a contractor, all right, let's talk about the price. Let's talk about what would be a reasonable profit margin for you. And it typically ends up being less than 15%. Is that sort of a symbol of the government's power in this equation? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much a symbol of the government's power because we can say if you if you want to sell to us, you're going to do it on our terms. But but here's the thing. Even though the government has this monopsonistic buying power, the defense contractors also have power. And that is because for things like jets and missiles and submarines, there's often only one or two companies that can realistically make these things. In other words, they have monopoly power. It isn't like, well, I didn't like my Ford station wagon. I'm going to go buy a Subaru, you know. We don't have that choice. And, and, and interestingly, it is the government itself that is partly responsible for this situation. For about four decades after World War II, the U.S. was in the Cold War standoff with the Soviet Union. Both sides were building up their militaries. And by the mid-1980s, when John started working for the Senate Armed Services Committee, he says the government was still buying a ton of military stuff. That year, we bought over 900 combat aircraft. We bought 27 ships, 3,000 combat vehicles. But by the early 1990s, the Soviet Union had collapsed and the Cold War was basically over. When that happened, we'd had a large military and big budgets. We didn't need them anymore. And so the government faced this dilemma. If it was going to cut military spending, what would happen to all those defense contractors it worked with? Were they just going to go out of business? And this led to an event that reshaped the defense industry for decades, ominously named the Last Supper. Defense industry consultant Doug Berenson says it was organized by William Perry, the deputy secretary of defense at the time. Perry, in 1993, gets together a group of defense industry leaders and tells them, listen, we're about to cut the budget substantially. There's not going to be a lot of new defense programs coming down the pike. A lot of you are going to have to get out of this market and consolidate with each other. You know, I can't afford to sustain all of you. What, like, there are too many mouths to feed? 100%. You're going to have to consolidate with each other and right-size to an industry that is more appropriate to the era that we're in. So with the government's blessing, the defense contractors started merging and acquiring each other. It's interesting because you often hear about the government wanting to break up big business, not telling a bunch of companies to band together and become big business. It's definitely like a different tune than we're hearing federal regulators say nowadays. That is true. And before long, about 50 companies eventually merged into the five biggest defense contractors around today. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics. I think when the department gave its blessing to this period of consolidation, it, it did not intend to lose competition. From the government's point of view, merging would make defense companies more efficient, give them economies of scale that hopefully they would pass on in the form of lower prices to the government. 
But in a lot of ways, this is not how it turned out. For one thing, less competition in the industry meant each contractor had more pricing power. For example, according to a report done by CBS's 60 Minutes last year, there are these shoulder-fired missiles that about three decades ago cost $25,000 a piece. Today, those missiles are being sent to Ukraine at a cost of about $400,000 a piece. And the sole supplier is RTX, formerly known as Raytheon. Now, in some cases, where there is more than one potential supplier for some new advanced weapons system, the government will try to solicit multiple bids to try to play companies off one another to get the benefits of competition. But Doug says that benefit kind of evaporates once the government chooses who it's going with. Once you're down to one contractor, that contractor has enormous leverage over you. A prime example, Doug says, is the F-35 fighter jet. This aircraft that is now more than a decade behind schedule and more than $180 billion over budget. But the government, having sunk all this time and money and having built a good chunk of its defense strategy around this fighter jet, it's not about to abandon it. It's locked in. Clearly, they haven't heard about the sunk cost fallacy. (laughs) Maybe not. It's worth noting that market concentration and a lack of competition are not the only things driving high defense spending. The experts we spoke to also cited defense industry lobbying and Congress people who want to hold on to outdated military projects to protect jobs. Also, the Department of Defense's failure to modernize how it buys stuff. And then, of course, there's the fact that the government for decades just wants to build a big military. The kind of military power that the U.S. is able to marshal and sustain and project around the world is completely unmatched by any country on Earth. And if you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave that to you individually, but it is enormously expensive. Tomorrow, our journey into the defense industry continues as we consider the threat of a munitions shortage in the U.S., I look at why it's happening and whether a certain style of manufacturing that came from a car company might be to blame. This episode was produced by Cooper Katz-McKim with engineering by Maggie Luthar. It was fact-checked by Sierra Juarez. Kagan Cannon edits the show and the indicators for production of NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts.